ministry. Um, I tell you, my cup is full. I'm very thankful for that opportunity. Today, let's take our Bibles. We'll turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 8. Now, this passage has a very special meaning for me. If you've been to a funeral at Oaklawn Bible Church, you've probably heard me share this text. It's a passage of Scripture that talks about the faithful and how they serve God. And it has a real special place in my heart because it's the funeral that I, or the sermon that I shared at the funeral of my own mother and how she uh, faithfully served God. So uh, when I approach this text, it touches my heart because I think of loved ones, both my mother and those who have faithfully served God in this church. Uh, It reminds me of their faithfulness and it encourages me to be faithful too. And that's what I want us all to consider as we look into this text and we see Paul reflecting on how to live life and face death. You know, there's a popular bumper sticker that you'll see at times on cars, and basically it says this, he who dies with the most toys wins. Now, whether that's done tongue-in-cheek or or, or whether it, it has meaning to the people who display that, I can't say. I guess you'd have to view that on a case-by-case basis. But there are definitely people in this world that believe that. There are those who think, hey, as long as I acquire a lot of things and go to the right school, have the right job, live in the right neighborhood, then I have won, and my life really counts for something. But what we're going to see as we look into the Word of God is that is patently untrue. Success in life isn't measured by your portfolio, by your job title, It isn't measured by where you live. Success in life is truly measured by what you do for Christ because that's what really lasts. When we look at all of the achievements that we can have apart from Christ, they're temporary. They're a flash in the pan. You might be remembered for a generation, perhaps two, but there's nothing that really lasts in it. Certainly nothing that's eternal. You see, even if you're remembered for a thousand years or two thousand years, what is that in comparison to eternity? Not even a blip. Not even a dot on the timeline. What really matters and what really counts is what we do for God. And so that's what Paul is sharing with Timothy. In chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, he's talking about his own philosophy of life. And understand this, it's easy to talk about how you view death when death isn't a possibility. We can all wax eloquent and be very brave about how we would face death if it's not right on the horizon. For the Apostle Paul, it was. You remember the context of this passage. Paul is in prison awaiting execution. He's encouraging Timothy to continue in the ministry, and in this, his last of all of his letters written in the New Testament, here is Paul talking to Timothy about how he himself faces death, but also how Timothy should prepare to face death as well. So this is a poignant passage. It shares with us some important insights into how we should live and even how we should die. So let's talk about the attitude of a faithful servant. Throughout our study 
in 2 Timothy, we've seen the theme of faithfulness. And it's no different right here. What we find in this text is an attitude that Paul had toward being a faithful servant. And he begins it by describing a drink offering. He's sharing with us that we need to adopt the role of being a sacrifice of praise. And in order for us to really grasp this, we have to consider for a moment, what is a sacrifice of praise? Notice Paul says, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering. When we look in the Old Testament at the drink offering, we find that a drink offering was something that was poured on the altar. Whether it was a ram or a lamb or a bull being offered to God, the drink offering would come and be poured over the altar, and it was a praise to God in addition to the sin offering. It was an expression of adoration, an expression of praise, and what a beautiful description that is of our lives. Jesus Christ secured for us forgiveness. So what we're doing is we are taking and pouring over the sacrifice of Jesus, our own sacrifice, as an expression of worship and of praise. And for the child of God who truly seeks to follow God, that's exactly what our lives should be. Now Paul said this to the Romans, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. When we are believers, we should view our lives as sacrifices, expressions of adoration, praise. We should seek to honor God with our bodies in every way that we can. That is considered our reasonable service, our spiritual act of worship. And this is what God wants us to do. But here's the thing about a drink offering. When a drink offering was offered, there was a container and there were prescribed amounts for each sacrifice that was offered. But here's the thing. The prescribed amount meant that once the drink offering was poured out, it was done. It was completed. What a picture of our lives. We have a limited amount of life in us. And at the end of it, we're completely poured out. We're spent. It comes to an end. This is what Paul was saying in addition to the aspect of serving God with your life. That all of us have lives that have an end time. As a matter of fact, God appoints that time where we die, that offering comes to an end. We need to view our lives as something that has limited opportunity. Isn't it easy to look at our lives and say, I'll pour a little bit out for God here and a little bit out for God here and a little bit here and just kind of drizzle it. When a drink offering was offered, it was given in completeness. It was poured out. There wasn't just little drip here, little drip here. It was poured out. This is what God wants us to do with our lives. To pour it out completely upon the sacrifice of his praise. God wants us to live this kind of life before him out of love for him. Because of all that Christ has done for us. What kind of offering are you giving God? 
with your life, what kind of offering are you giving? Is it a drip at a time? Or is it pouring it all out for God's glory? My encouragement, pour it all out for his glory. This is the way we should view life along with the Apostle Paul. But then we come to another part of this sixth verse. After this illustration of a drink offering, he goes on to say, the time has come for my departure in the latter part of that sixth verse. We need to approach death with faith in God's promises. Understand this. God has a lot to say about death and the hope that follows for the child of God. The term that Paul uses in this text when he says, the time has come for my departure, that word departure, you know what it means in the original language? It was a term that was used outside the Bible to refer to a ship that would loose its moorings and then head out to go to a destination. It was also a military term. When the military would break camp, they would leave that place to go to a specific destination. What a description of the life that the child of God expects after their life here on this earth. When we die, we go into the very presence of God. In fact, the Word of God tells us that We can have confidence in in the knowledge that as long as we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, we live by faith and not by sight, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Do you see what that text is saying? For the child of God, there isn't this floating around disembodied looking for a place to hang out. The moment that we die, by the way, that's not true of anyone, including the child of God. Nobody floats around and waits disembodied to find a place to dwell. But for the child of God, there is a place that we know that we go, and that is into the very presence of the Lord. It's instantaneous. It is the moment that we breathe our last. We go into the very presence of God, the side of Jesus Christ. What a great promise that is. What a tremendous hope. The Apostle Paul knew that he would be martyred, but his destination was set. And listen, if you put your personal faith in Jesus Christ, the fact that he died on the cross for your sins, the fact that he rose again victorious over sin, and the fact that that's not just a historical fact, but a fact that is true for you. And when you place your faith in Jesus' sacrifice as your hope of forgiveness and a relationship with the Father, you have a destination. And that's heaven. And that's the presence of the Lord. And listen, it is not presumptuous to find that with confidence. You see, the scripture tells us this, the testimony, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now look at the 13th verse. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know 
that you have eternal life. The destination set. We know exactly what God has for us by faith because of Jesus. So when we face death, while we might look at the process and say, I don't want to suffer, I don't want the discomfort that often precedes death, we can look at death and say, I have every confidence that I will go into the presence of God. And let me say this, as a pastor, I have been with so many people on their deathbed. In 35 years, you have that privilege a lot. And you know what I've seen? It's increased my faith. As I see a child of God saying, I'm ready to go home. I'm ready to put aside this tent. I'm ready to go into the presence of God. And then to see the peace that they pass with. In anticipation of going home to glory. If that doesn't build your faith and bolster it, I don't know what will. We can know that we're going into the presence of God by faith. What a precious promise. Paul knew this, and he gave this testimony to the Philippians. I eagerly expect and hope that I will no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Do you catch that? To live is Christ, but to die is actually gain. It is a better place. He goes on to say, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me, yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far, but is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. What faith and what a perspective. Boiled all down. You know what that passage is saying? I love being here so that I can serve God. But I look forward to the prospect of being in the very presence of God. For that's even better. Whether life or death, our lives should be centered and focused on serving our God. That's the message of this passage. And that's exactly what Paul was encouraging Timothy with. So those are the attitudes that we're to have. Let's move on to the actions of a faithful servant. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 shares with us three actions that Paul used to describe his life. And I want us to look at the first, and that is we're to actively fight the good fight. When we look at our life here on this earth in service to God, many times we find it described as a fight, something that we struggle with. In fact, in this seventh verse, the word that is used for fought is the word that we get our word agony from. It's the idea of contending, of struggling, of going at it until it hurts. That's what we as believers are to do as we fight the good fight 
for Jesus Christ. There will be times of intense joy. There will be times where we look and we say, man, it doesn't get any better than this. But there are also those times where we say, it can't get much worse than this. Man, I am struggling and I'm hurting and I have to remain faithful. Live long enough and you're going to experience both. But you know what the child of God who is faithful does? They keep fighting the good fight. They keep on keeping on. We have to commit ourselves to standing strong in that fight. And the beauty of the Christian life is this. God gives us the resources that we need to do that. It's not just digging down deep and saying, I'll be a stronger person. It's learning to depend on God and allowing God to fight that fight through you. This is what we as the children of God need to do to stand firm. In a fight, if you're distracted and you're looking around, seeing what's going on somewhere else, you're going to get clocked, right? So it's focusing on what we're doing. It's maintaining that focus on the things of God. It is continually fighting that good fight. And then there's another activity. Paul goes on in that seventh verse after he says, I have fought the good fight to say, I have finished the race. Now notice the note of finality as Paul is looking back on his life. He's speaking of having fought the good fight, having finished the race. As he's prepared to die, he was looking back on his life without regret. He was looking and he was saying, I've done the things that God has asked of me. And brothers and sisters, I hope at the end of my life, I can say the same. The more gray hair I get, the more I look and I pray, God, let me finish well. And that should be all our prayers, whether you are 20 years old or whether you're approaching the end of your life, and I won't give a number for that. That should be our focus because we don't know how long we have. I love it that the Christian life is so often portrayed in Paul's writings and in the writings of the New Testament as a race. But here's the thing about our race. It's not a sprint It's a marathon. It's tough to run a marathon. As you can tell, I'm built for comfort, not for speed. (laughs) My boys were on the cross-country team, and I watched them compete in cross-country. And that's not even a marathon, but you would see those kids crossing the finish line and collapsing because they had given all that they had to give. And at the end of the race, they were spent. That's the idea of commitment. It's the idea of engaging in the race. And even when you hit that wall that runners all talk about, that place where they say, man, I I don't know if I want to take another step. I'm done. Then they get their second win and they take off. 
You know, that, that can happen in our spiritual lives as well, but you keep running the race. That's true of individuals, and I think it's also true of a church as well. We need to keep running the race. It's marked out for us, and we're to keep on keeping on. The writer of Hebrews said this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. So what we're to see in this text is this. As followers of Jesus Christ, fix your eyes on him. He's the goal. He's the finish line. Keep running. Keep pushing. Keep pursuing that walk with him. Third, if we want to be one who has the actions of a faithful servant, we will adhere to the faith. I love what Paul says in this seventh verse, I have kept the faith. You know what it means to keep the faith? First of all, it means that we stay true to God's doctrine, God's truth, God's word. We don't allow the pressure of a society and a world around us to distort our image of what is truth because we view God's word as his revelation to us and we will keep it. We will protect it. We will preserve it. But keeping the faith means more than just doctrinal orthodoxy. Keeping the faith means that I obey it. That I live out the principles of truth that God has revealed to me. Listen, as followers of Jesus Christ, if you want to be faithful, we need to be obedient. We need to not just accumulate a lot of knowledge about what God says, but we need to actively pursue living out that knowledge. That's adhering to the faith. That's keeping it. Paul could in his testimony say, I have kept the faith. I hope that at the end of my life I can say the same. I have kept the faith. This is what we're to pursue. Final part of the text. The advantage to being a faithful servant. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 talks about being awarded the crown of righteousness. And notice how this is framed. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Notice the confidence. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. You know, when we serve God, So often, many of the things that we do to serve him go unnoticed by those around us. We serve and we don't get the recognition that 
probably we deserve, or even that we think we deserve. But here's the truth of God's word. There's one who sees. And he's the one who counts. Because that is God. In fact, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm sure Barry will get to this, the following. When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do, in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now this principle that is shared here is such an important principle for us to grasp. When you serve God, often there will not be the recognition here on earth. When you give, don't take your offering, wave it in the air, and bring it to the plate. You know, not the purpose of it. When you do something spiritual, you don't have to get up in a testimony meeting and say, you know, God gave me the privilege of doing this. So that everybody will know. You're doing it in feigned humility, but you want everybody to know, so you get the pats on the back. What we do, we do for God. And the righteous judge sees it all. The scripture speaks of the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ in several passages. And there at the judgment seat of Christ, it's not to determine whether we have done enough to get into heaven. That was determined the moment we trusted Christ as our Savior. But what it does determine is what have we done and why have we done it? And Jesus looks into our hearts and evaluates us on what we've done. Faithful service is always rewarded by the Lord. Paul put it this way, there is in store for me. In other words, there is laid up in heaven a reward for how I've served Christ. Is it selfish or self-serving to look forward to the reward? I would say to you, absolutely not. The scripture speaks of our rewards on many occasions. In fact, Jesus said this, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, there are those rewards that are laid up for us in heaven and we're to look forward to those things. So here's the incentive. Rather than looking at the immediate things that you can achieve or store up for yourselves here and now, mature believers look and say, while these things are okay, what really counts are the things that I lay up and store in heaven. I can't take the things of this world with me but the things that I've laid up in heaven are already waiting there for me. I don't have to even bring them with me. They're there. And they've been seen by the Lord, the righteous judge. Paul said this to the Corinthians, that 
as each believer is tried, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and fire will test the quality of each man's work. Listen, what we do for Jesus Christ is evaluated by the Lord himself and he awards to us what we are due for the kind of service that we've given. A faithful servant considers that and lives in light of that truth. Final point. The advantage to being a faithful servant of God is that any of the things that we've talked about in this text are available to anyone who longs for his appearing. Look at the last part of this verse. There's in store for us a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Now, isn't that kind of an unusual way to frame this? Why didn't Paul say he'll award those to all of those who have worked and lived righteously and obediently to Christ? Why did he say long for Christ's appearing? You know, it's unfortunate, but so much discussion about the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ has been set aside because there's controversy in Christian circles about the timing of Christ's return. Here's one thing that I see in Scripture. When Scripture speaks of Christ's return, it's always spoken of as imminent. It could come at any time, and that in turn is a motivation for us to live. What the scripture wants us to understand is this. I should live as though Christ's return could be at any moment. That's the way I should live. I should long for it. There are those who are even in the community of faith who say, I'm not ready for Christ's return. I got this I need to straighten out. I have this that I'm looking forward to. I can remember before I got married that my friends and I would joke, I'm going to be walking, my wife will be walking down the aisle, wife-to-be, and the trumpet will sound and I'll never get to be married, you know? There were things that I wanted to see, things I wanted to do before the return of Christ, but as I matured, I found that that isn't the case. It's never a loss when Christ returns. It's always a gain. But there are some believers who live not in light of Christ's return, but who are asleep. Paul said this to the Romans, And do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Now, here he's talking about the completion of our salvation at the return of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say this, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of of your sinful nature, sobering words 
that we find in the Word of God. Those who long for Christ's return live obediently, and they put aside the things that distract or detract from a faithful life. This morning we have seen from the Word of God a challenge to us to live obediently, to be faithful in our service to God. We have seen that there are certain attitudes and activities that we should have as we live our life and as we prepare ultimately for death. But we've also seen that there are tremendous advantages that are so much longer lasting than the advantages this world has to afford. So let me encourage you this morning, do some evaluation. Do I demonstrate the attitudes and actions of a faithful servant or do I not? Am I distracted? Perhaps this morning you've never even come to the place to where You've entered entered into a relationship with God by placing your faith in what Jesus did for you on the cross. Listen, all you have to do is turn from your sin to Christ and trust him as your savior. And you can enter this wonderful journey that is described here in this text to where you can know where you'll spend eternity. A child of God who knows where you will spend eternity, does your life match up with your hope? you live in such a way that if someone were to look at you, they would say there's someone living for eternal things. That's something that you can only discern for yourself. I can't discern it for you. But if the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart and he's saying to you, you need to stop and reevaluate and make some changes in your life. Don't put it off. Embrace what the Spirit calls you to do today. If you have questions about where you stand or how you can get to the place to where you can live like what Paul described, love the opportunity to talk with you. You can call the church at any time and we can set up an appointment. And I would consider it a true privilege to sit down and talk with you about a need that you would have to discuss. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you.